Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we can make it happen. I'm Amanda Scott, and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to the survival of humanity, which is to say, to making conscious evolution a possibility, or even a probability. And now in this second series, we're branching out to find the people who are using these tools, people with the experience and the depth of practice to act as trailblazers, showing us the many paths that we can walk to a future where humanity and the planet can flourish together. And so with that in mind, my guest today is Ang Harad Wynne, a woman of astonishing depth and experience. Ang Harad's a dreamer, a storyteller, a mythmaker, and a placeholder. She's part of the team that, when we're not in lockdown, introduces people to pilgrimage on this land, based at Caimabon in Wales. It's fair to say that her entire life and practice is steeped in the pre-Christian native spirituality of Britain. She's someone who teases out the fragile threads of ancient Brythonic myth and poetry to draw together the fragments of lore that can help to guide and sustain a living spiritual practice in deep connection with this land. As with Natalie Nahai last week, Angharad and I originally recorded a conversation long ago in the days before lockdown. It was a lovely conversation, and we might release it sometime as a bonus podcast. But the world has changed, and we decided we'd rather talk again. And in the process, we discovered points of common experience that I really hadn't expected and found deeply moving. So I hope you, too, find moments of connection in Angharad's deeply spiritual view of life and death and our place on the timeline. So, people of the podcast, please welcome Angharad Wynn. So, welcome to Accidental Gods. Um, and we did record a while ago, and it was a lovely recording, and I even have the transcript, so we might release that as a bonus episode at some point. But it did age very quickly because we recorded when the floods were the biggest of our chaos. And quite quickly after that, floods stopped being anything at all. So how are you in week whatever? I think we're in week five of lockdown now. How are things? Yeah, thank you, Amanda. And yeah, thanks for, for hosting this this chat again for us to update on, on that. Um, where I am is, is profoundly um, interested in this process that we're going through and in a deep place of listening. I feel as if I've this kind of space, and I, I, I suppose I've come to think of it as ritual space in a way, as if everything in the universe is actually asking us to create space around us to just be and to listen and to come back to the fundamentals of life um, and connection. Um, and that's been a really beautiful time for me because like most of us um I am running around um doing things servicing kind of you know 
different clients and jobs and and all those kind of things, as well as trying to live in this um, more spacious, more meaningful spiritual life that is very, very important to me and is, is the basis of all my life. But that busyness can often override that connection quite easily. So um, having this spaciousness, I'm feeling very grateful for it. I'm also incredibly aware of my privilege of having a garden um, and space and access to nature. And so there's, there's, there's that whenever I drop down into it, there's a great deal of gratitude and listening. And there's also an awareness of how this is not the same for everyone and how this is a very personal journey through this time where we're, we're in. It's a really interesting time. It's the first time that all of humanity is sharing one story. Isn't it? Yeah. But each for each of us, it's an individual story through it. But there are themes that are coming out, I think, and that's really interesting. Right. So um, I would like to explore those themes. But I was just before we get to there, you were talking about ritual space mm. and treating this time as ritual space and time to listen and time to connect with the fundamentals of life. Mm. And I wondered if you could expand on how practically you are doing that in ways that people listening might also be able to do? Mm. Well, I have, um, like many people, I have a, a kind of a contemplative kind of daily practice that nourishes me. But I feel that that's been able to expand during this time. I find myself in a more prayerful flow I feel as if I'm becoming, this might seem strange, I'm becoming more human. Oh, wonderful. I'm getting to know what it is for me, what it is to be me. And that means, as it often does in ritual, meeting myself, the difficult bits of myself, mm. in this silence. And I've really struggled with two, I mean, there are, everybody has many different sides, but, but one... Um, of, of my uh, big sides, if you like, with things that, I, that I, I hold and carry with me is that kind of warrior energy of being and doing mm. and trying to solve problems and make things happen and kind of be causal and, and to uh, defend and care for people and, and finding that actually in this situation, on that very physical plane, there's nothing much that I am actually equipped to do. There's some things I can I can help deliver shopping and things like that, but I'm actually being asked much, much more to attend to the listening, the more the more mystical dreaming side, actually. So yes, to come back to being more human, mm -hmm. I'm finding that I'm I'm I have time to garden much more, but I'm gardening in a different way. I'm gardening when I'm planting seeds, each planting is a, is a prayer. Right. Well done, that woman. And I'm reminded of, you know, how seeds were taken into the burial chambers of our ancestors to be blessed because death and rebirth and life are intimately connected, those threshold places. And so I felt really at the threshold, Brilliant. being in a place of death and rebirth um, and watching it be in the ether, tending to building a shrine actually I've, I've built a shrine in my garden I felt really compelled through a process to build a, a shrine to the grief and the 
and those you know dying there's there's a lot of sadness in this world at the moment and to go there and to be with that for for that time but also to plant seeds because you know, we have a we have a poor relationship with death in our society and i think our ancestors did tend to think about it in a better way that it was a gateway a threshold and that those transitions in and out are really important yeah. and to be to be with that. And so for me, planting seeds with a prayer um, for the dead, the dying and the suffering is really important. And then to watch them grow. Right. And what kind of seeds are you planting? Just out of interest, what what is it? Oh, I'm, I've got, you know, tomatoes and kale and okay, edible seeds. flowers and all sorts of edible seeds and, 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 flowers. and flowers. I mean, uh, you know, I think creating beauty yeah. is really important. Yes. I'm really in touch with the beauty of my garden. Every morning I go out and I'm just filled with overbrimming with you know, blossom on the on the cherry mm, tree yes. and a, and a blackbird singing in it, and it it blows my heart open. Yeah. And I'm I'm feeling through through just being connected to the small things in my garden, to the frogs and the tadpoles in the pond, the birds that come and visit, to the blossom. It's as if I'm really intimately connected to the beginnings of the web. Right. And if I can link into that, then I can be linked into all things. And that for me is the is where I, I, I want to be more. Right. That's the space I want to be more. Because I think that's the place where where it's at right now for me. And I think that, that connection with that great web of life, that's what I mean by becoming more human. I'm able to exist in right. that space of connection much more by this quietness, this spaciousness, this bringing it down to the to the small, the very local, the very intimate, the very much what is right around me. And that enables that opening into the greater web of life. Because this is something I'm really genuinely curious because I had thought that you were, you lived a life of deep connection anyway. You have your work at Kaimabon, you have your work with the Dadani, which you might like to tell us a little about. We may well play our original conversation, but in case we don't get to it, it would be useful to have a kind of potted history of that. But I had imagined you, I do imagine you as someone deeply, deeply connected and that you took the time to connect. And so what I'm hearing is that you have more time now or simply that the requirements of this time have sent you deeper on a spiral that you were already on? I think it's a bit of both, probably. Um, I think like, you know, as I said, like most of us, there are many things in life that are important. You know, I have a daughter. I, ha I have to attend to her nurturing. I have to mm. attend to keeping a roof over our house and food in the fridge and and all those those things. But they... <laughs> they take away from maybe my ideal of being, um, you know, the, the the kind of the spirit person at the edge of the village that just tends to, um, te that tends to the relationship of the village with nature. I'd really love love to to be that, you know, um, but that's not the the world I live in right now. Yeah. So. I ha while I have a, a daily practice, I also I'm really lucky in my work that I get to take people out on pilgrimages. I get to walk the land a lot in order to prepare for that and for my own sanity, if you like. And so that is my time of really mm. deep connection. Like you, I get to, 
you know, work with wonderful people in ceremonial situations, in um, group situations, and that is an opening to that. So yes, I do. I do probably live a more connected life than, than many are able to, but this has given me more space to just be mm. alone to do it. That doesn't mean that I'm always learning, you know, there's there's a lot of Zoom meetings going on and there's a lot of connecting. <laughs> and, and, you know, and and yeah. it's a really good counterbalance to that. But there's also something about this time that every time, every time I go and meet the all there is, there's a there's a requirement to just listen and stop and not think about yeah. doing or responding, but just mm. just being with what it is and noticing um and i'm and i'm truly grateful for that it's it's as if it's as if we're being given a glimpse of of a deeper connection that humanity can have and the challenge will be to hold on to that in a more profound way um as we move through this yes yes which is really interesting because i am getting exactly the same i go up the hill in the mornings and and particularly the last 10 days, I would say, there's an absolute imperative to be heart open in ways that I mm. I thought I knew about being heart open. And I'm learning layers and depths and a balancing in the moment that goes beyond mm. anything I've ever experienced. And it feels as if that in itself is, there's a deepening and there's layers and layers and layers. And each time I, mm. I come new to it, I start where I left off yesterday and go deeper. And and it does feel to me as if this is, I was expecting more to be asked. And I am absolutely yeah. open to what does the world need of me. And it is this yeah. beingness. So I, it's very heartening that you have that too. Yes, that's a very similar experience. Uh, no, I'm, I'm really interested in this. There's something evolutionary in this. A friend of mine who is just getting better from covid um and he's a scientist he's a doctor actually he's a he's a consultant and he said something really really interesting um 10 of the human genome is made up of viruses hmm. yep and his take on this is that it's that's part of our evolutionary process and that this virus hmm. has very much an evolutionary purpose. When he's well, we might invite him onto the podcast because I've been reading Greg Baden, who is one of these, he's kind of on the fringes of, he's what I would call the quantum Scientologists, which is they take quantum science and they spin it to places that I don't really think it can actually go. But that doesn't mean that what the underlying truth of what they're saying is wrong. I just think they're trying to excuse it in ways that are not yet joining up dots. But he is adamant that Gene 2, he, he is very keen on on how our genetic makeup is constructed and that there is a particular part of our genes, the one that codes for the way we are able to move our laryngeal muscles to create sound, which apparently I hadn't realised, but it's true once you think about it. He said every other species speaks in vowels. And we have consonants, and that gives us much more range and much more ability to do what we do, which is take very small patterns and reassemble them in new sequences that create everything that we understand about our 
social evolution, our ability to take ideas and spread them very fast over very wide distances. And this, he, he's very keen that Gene 2 arose very suddenly out of nowhere. Right. And we don't know how and we don't know why, but it was an emergent property of the complexity of the time. So it would be very interesting to talk to somebody who is presumably quite bedded in the material world, but mm. also understands where genes I've tried to get hold of Greg Baden, but he's <laughs> immensely busy. Yes, that this may be part of our evolution, because we have no idea. The, the work has not yet been done on mm. the people who recover. Yeah. In what ways are they different? I've been curious about this in in a kind of looking at it in a in a shamanic perspective of of what being carried this virus to us. Now I'm going to put aside all the conspiracy mm. theories and just um, assume that actually did come to us through a bat. And a bat has is using many many more ways of perceiving the world than we can at the moment. And it feels, you know, from that shamanic way, and I'm sure there'll be people who can explore this much more than me, but it feels as if, again, it comes back to this thing of listening. It's almost as if the requirement is to listen and sense and just be still, Mm. um, to really open up our senses more than just the the maybe the five senses that we're used to working with. I'm sure that you know our ancestors kind of used the muscles of other senses that we've kind of forgotten. Yeah. And so it feels as if maybe part of this there's a message in in that kind of that bat messenger of it's time to re kind of connect with some of those muscles and, and try to sense the world in a different way. And do you find when you're in the presencing, whatever we call the um, the being in heart space. For me, my senses all become sharper when I am deeply in that space. Is that the same for you? Yes. And it comes, there's also a, a sense of, um, I don't know about you, Amanda, but it, there's waves of it. So um, I become conscious of it and I have to be care- careful of getting myself out of it again, out of the picture again. So it, it wavers. But there's a, a real crystalline quality about it. Yes. Yes, that kind of sharpness of, of crystals. And the sense, the quality of the light for me, it's as if everything is coming through a lens um, and becoming sharper. Oh, there's a red kite that's just come and graced us by flying immediately above us. And it's really rare. The red kite doesn't, we don't have red kites in this immediate area until the beginning of this pandemic. Oh, isn't that interesting? Really interesting. And, and the red kite is very, it's, it's a, a bird that I work a lot with and I, I just love them. But it, it's just every now and again, yes. and this has happened a number of times, just having come. a really profound conversation and it just appears in circles above. And it's just such a blessing. Yes, I've found that. Yes, because we have had them, we've had a couple over the hill, but I was up the other morning doing something that felt to me transformative. And I looked up because there was a shadow kept going over me really low. And and there was a kite that was just flying back and forward across my head, oh, about wow. three feet over my head. And the, the dog and the cat were kind of pressing <laughs> themselves closer and closer into my legs going, yeah, that's quite a big bird. It could pick us up. Um, and now there were, and then I looked up and there were seven circling over the hill and I had never seen that many. Um, So thank you to the red kite. 
So we were just talking about the crystalline nature of reality when we finally find the balance and the the way that our senses sharpen and deepen. And I'm wondering, I would like to talk a little bit about dreaming later, but I know that also you and I had a number of conversations because death is more prevalent at the moment all around us. It's not, you know, people die every year. People die of the flu every year, but people haven't died in the way people are dying with the coronavirus for us before. And I know that you are quite a profound psychopomp and that you were looking into the needs of the newly dead. And I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think, you know, in one of these times when I was kind of touching in, just the realisation that, um, let's be clear on this, there's no, not significantly, and this might sound strange, but there's not significantly more death in the world right now than there would usually be. Hmm. There's 200,000, sorry, 20,000 children that die from starvation every day. Hmm. The difference is, is that this death is at our door in a more profound way. Yeah. And also for me, I think there's a little bit of something that has, I've been finding quite difficult is the sense that people have had to be alone in hospital, not having their loved ones around them. That's not to, to um, you know, to, to put down the amazing work that the staff in those hospitals do intending to the very sick and dying. I think that's amazing. But they are all gowned up. It's not the same as as what most of us would want in our passing is to have our loved ones around us. Mm, yeah. And I think that's also incredibly difficult for people left behind who haven't had a sense of being able to say goodbye. Um, right. So when I was kind of, I was curious about this, I was curious about, well, so, so what is there in the ether on this? You know, have we got lots of very traumatized souls um, having real trouble crossing over and, Every time I went to check, there was like, no, that's that's not the case. Mm. The trauma seems to be this side of dying, this in this world. Right. And it's to do with a fear around dying. Again, we're not very good at, at this threshold stuff. We're not terribly good at birth. We've medicalized it. Um, we're not very good at, at death. I think in both cases, we're getting better. Yeah. Um, it's as if we kind of have gone to the peak of medicalization we, we, we're bringing more natural processes we're understanding the importance of certain conditions um and we're we're more than anything we're we're really understanding the role that fear has both in in birth mm. and in death uh, I've, I've been with people you know who've died who've who've slipped away very gracefully at the end of their their years and it's a beautiful passing and there's a real grace to it. And it's it's profoundly enriching and a real honor to be to witness it. Mm. Because I think it gives it gives anybody witnessing it a sense that this is a is a, it's a transition, it's not an ending. The same with with birth. I've been at good births and I've seen not so good births or heard of not so good births. Um and I've also known people dying who've been very afraid and who've really struggled with it. Yes, it's about dying well. I read somewhere at the start of this pandemic, somebody in conversation in, I think, an Ecuadorian village, and the conversation went along the lines of, you have no ventilators, you cannot possibly get 
anybody here to a hospital where there will be a ventilator. What are you going to do when the virus reaches? And the old grandmother to whom this was addressed looked at the white Western individual and and frowned for a moment and said, we'll call the shaman and make sure they have a good death. As if, as if anything else, even if there were ventilators, that it's the good death that matters. And a good death, as I understand it, isn't necessarily a painless death. It's a death met with grace and equanimity as a way of stepping into the next phase of our being. And so I am partly wondering if some of the teaching of this time is to help us in a wider scale find the grace to die. Because I, I think you're right, our culture has has got to the point where people can reach the moment of dying and never have encountered death other than insects on their windscreen at any point or, you know, something happening on the television or on a computer game. And so I'm wondering, are you finding people engaging differently with death as you're encountering them? Is this something that's happening or is it something that we can help to happen? And if so, how? Oh, that's a really good question. There's lots of questions there. Um, the deeper concern with these thresholds is creating well ancestors. An ancestor that is able to be in grace and service um, or at peace, you know, mm. but, but, but also that, that has not got so much trauma that there's lots of stuff to resolve the other side. And, you know, uh, most, I think, you know, shamans, spiritual leaders, especially kind of people who've got very ancient tribal knowledge will tell us and do tell us that, that the, the living and the ancestors being in balance and in being in good relationship with each other is incredibly important. And so honouring our ancestors is one thing, but often if there's lots of trauma that has two two kind of impacts. One, it impacts in that there is a whole lot of grief on the other side. There's a whole lot of difficulty. And that comes down in, in, in terms of um, bloodlines as well. People carry that through. Mm. And we also know that it affects kind of genetically. There is um, science around the fact that kind of yes. Holocaust you know, survivors, the genes that they pass on, there is a, a something in one of those genes, a, a mutation that, that tends to cause depression in people who come after them. Right. Wow. And is this an epigenetic change that happens during the life of the individual and then is transmitted down the gene line? I suspect so. I, I don't, yeah, I, I assume. I don't know exactly how it, it works. I'm, I'm no scientist. I'm kind of, you know, processing the, the science to a place where I can understand it. It's just there seems to be enough scientists okay. telling us that this happens, that major trauma can cause physical changes to our DNA and everything like that. So there is something about this time this death and rebirth time that we're we're in right now, that holding, and as I said, you know, for me, that the, the the grief and the trauma is is very much happening on on this side. It seems that there's 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 less actually. It's it seems to be okay on the other side. From what I'm being told, other people may hear different things, but that's my truth at the moment. That's what I'm getting. Mm. But it is something to do about our relationship to death. And therefore, if we change our relationship to death, our relationship with life becomes so much more 
exquisite. Yes. Four or five years ago, I, I came very close to death myself um, within a few hours of it. Gosh. And I lived with a pretty dire diagnosis for a few weeks before they changed the diagnosis. And what happened for me was very much what's, it feels very similar to what's happening now. I came into a place of deep listening and spaciousness. And I saw how precious life was through very small moments and things, kindness, love, connection, beauty mm. in nature, exquisiteness, that conversation between everything and the web of life. So that was a real um, rite of passage, if you like, for me. And I'm really grateful that I, yes. that I survived the other side. But it, what I, the one thing I remember realizing is that actually when it came down to it, I didn't actually fear death. Hmm. And the process of getting really close to it showed me a great beauty in the holding that there is for that. The, the holding, the spiritual holding that there is for that, the ancestral holding that there is for that space. What I was afraid of was leaving my daughter at a very tender age. Right. That was my kind of my hold back to life. That was the real anchor, if you like. And that has been profoundly important for me. And when I look at this time now, I'm starting this morning when I was just kind of dropping down. What I, what I got came through for me this morning is that we're in the process of dying, which is necessary between two epochs, between two moments in our own lives. Mm. But there will become a point where that dying changes to conception and then we've we've we're going to be gestating a new right. child to give birth to it now if we think about this in human terms when a mother conceives a child if she wants it to be healthy she's very mindful of her diet she's very mindful of what she takes on as influences um she's Kind of in, in, in traditional societies, there's a whole lot of holding for that mother because the energy of that mother during that time is very important for how the, the transition of the child and the child's birthing into the world. But also, we know that each child comes in with their own spirit, which comes in from the start. So that holding is only one part of it. That child has its own, has its own gift that we can't know until it's it's born and it, and it comes here. And and I, I, just to be clear, are you suggesting that we will be that child or that the children conceived now, of which I'm assuming there are going to be quite a lot, are the new children? No, I think it's more metaphorical than that. I think it's more that we're birth. We are all a part of birthing the new epoch. Whatever it is that comes from, from this death, there will always be something else. We're all, it's a transition from one thing to another. Okay. But we, there is, you know, part of what we create next is down to us. Now, that's a very complicated thing because we're all on a different page. And if we asked, even if we asked 10 people in our community how we wanted to envisage life, you know, we would get 10 different answers. Uh, and I don't have the answer to this, but I think that's, there is a challenge yeah. there. And also, we also know, you know, going back to the metaphor, that when it comes to the point of birth, birth can be really difficult and a real struggle. And a lot of what, you know, you will know this, 
Amanda, from your connection with midwives, the amount of fear. Mm. And also from being a vet, actually. <laughs> and also being a vet, yes. You know, the more fear there is, the more, the harder yes, it the is. Harder the, it. The, you know, dro- dropping into kind of confidence in the body and confidence in the all that is really supports that to flow through. And, and we will go through, be- through birth throes with this. And it's about mm. having courage and letting the flow to, for, for birth to come, to come through. But that, that time of gestation, mm. how we hold this and how we co-create whatever we want, part of it will be conscious, a part of it isn't for us to understand. It's happening anyway. Yeah, and I think for me, this comes back to what you and I were saying about the our sense when we engage in our contemplative practice in our different ways, that our role just now is, certainly for me, it's about having a physicality in my heart space and a sense of really being fully present in my heart mm-hmm. in ways that are totally new. And I've been doing this for 40 years. I really did think I knew this. And I'm learning depths of it. And so listening to you, it makes a lot of sense. This, My felt sense that the world is holding its breath is that kind of, that moment between, we're in the, between death and rebirth, there is a a moment of all potential and that we're in that moment of all potential and that the thing we must not do is engage our heads. We have to be in our heart space and have the courage to allow the being to arise out of that and for the birth to arise out of that. And if enough of us can do that, then it seems to me that the birth could be really very joyful because in that heart space there is such wonder and joy and awe and mm-hmm. and depths of grief that go beyond anything that I've known but they're they're not a destructive grief yeah which surprises me because my my you know experience of grief is that it takes me apart but this one doesn't and I'm wondering is that something that speaks to you it does to me i mean i have no you know, I cannot speak for the for the people who are going through very personal grief right now, but for me, there's a there's more of a shedding, a letting go, and trying to let it go gracefully, mm. um, and trying to attend to those bits of me that need to change. I think we all, you know, maybe this part of this time is that we all need to attend to our own stuff and get rid of the stuff mm. that really doesn't serve. Yeah. Yeah, and something about being in lockdown really brings <laughs> yeah. all your stuff to the yeah, surface, doesn't time it? Of silence. We, we, we go <laughs> so, yeah. into ritual silence to yeah. meet ourselves, you know, and this is what yes. we're doing. And there are internal struggles and things where we're very human and kind of and and imperfect and beautifully so. Yeah. It's just a real a real gift. And I'm reminded of you know, there's a, a beautiful um, burial chamber on Anglesey called Bryn Cellibi, which I know you know, Amanda. And in there during the Neolithic, you know, communities came together to, to, to create that. And it, it would have looked like a pregnant belly on the landscape with a chamber going in that at uh, midwinter, at midsummer, sorry, the light goes, the light goes into it. Now, it's only certain members of the community that were placed in that. We don't, the archaeologists don't understand why people were being chosen. It seems to be a cross section of young and old, um, you know, various differences, gender difference, all those kind of things. 
but it certainly wasn't the whole community. Mm. My kind of, when I dream into this, my sense of it is that they were choosing the qualities that the tribe needed for the next renewal. They were choosing certain people. So, for example, if there was a farmer that was really good at kind of his knowledge of farming and his able to understand these things was was, ex- was extraordinary and we needed a, a kind of more farming, he would be planted like a seed. Right. Like an ancestral seed in that pregnant belly. If a medicine woman was what was needed, when the medicine woman of the tribe and the threshold keeper of the tribe died, she would go in there so that the next generation conceived might take on something of her essence. And it's it's possible, there's plenty of evidence, you know, from caves and sacred places like this, that these places were also used as places of conception. Oh, really? Wow. So just think about that. To go in to conceive the next yes. generation. Amongst the dead. Amongst the chosen dead who have something of their lives was so potent. They brought such gifts. They were recognized for their gifts. The tribe needs them. Let's go in and create the new things. And I think that as to talk about them back to the metaphor of this death and this pregnancy. Mm. If we can be with the wisdom of this dying and to understand what was good about this moment, mm. then maybe we can conceive together how we want to move things on, what we what we hope for in this new child that we're birthing and there are some things i think i talked earlier about there seems to be a few themes that are coming out one is there's more it feels if there's more kindness Mm, doesn't it certainly amongst neighbor there's more connection even though we're, we're apart there's more connection and what wisdom what wisdom to try and make humanity feel love for each other yeah than by stopping them being with each other you know that those first hugs you're going to have with parents and loved ones, they're going to be astonishing. Yeah. There's something about this time that is a real gift to really sensing into that. And many, many other things, you know, what's happening in terms of pollution and all those things. Yes. What's happening with people being more settled in one place, really, yeah. you know, being, being close to their communities. So there are some things in this dying hmm. that are really precious. Yes, on every level. On every level. Um, we, we, we've shut down an economy that we said could not be shut down. Yeah. At the same time as discovering the things that really matter. Yeah. So I'm still very curious about the concept of well ancestors. And I know that you have put a lot of time and effort into going to places. So during the Extinction Rebellion action last October, you were mm-hmm. working in London with places that would have had the unremembered dead Mm. and doing ceremony to help Mm. honour those. And I'd like if you could speak a little bit about that, but also if we can speak to what people listening to this, because this is going to go out, we will still be in lockdown. What are the things that people listening can do to help the ancestor line to be healthy and whole and honoured so that our conception does come cleanly. Without us, I I find there's a huge amount of projection goes into ancestor work, which is one of the reasons, mm. as you know, I, I don't 
encourage my dreaming students to work with ancestors until at least we've worked together five or six years so that we've got through some of the most spectacular projections. So what it would be good is how can we help people to work with this in a way that's clean and doesn't hook into the inevitable projections around this? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's a really difficult question to, I think, answer wholly in a very open forum. Um, Because like you, um, I'm very careful about when you know when people are prepared to do this because I think it's quite deep and profound profound work and it's and it's certainly not something that that everybody feels comfortable with but I think there are just general things that people can do and one thing is simply to be aware that we are a product of all our ancestors each one of us Mm. living in this moment now is a product of thousands upon thousands of chance meetings and connections and our ancestors all had stories they lived lives and something of that comes through us in in terms of genetics but my personal understanding is that also we carry some of spiritual genetics if you like Mm. we come through with some of the trauma that is is unresolved with some of the joys, with some of the talents, with some of the knowledge maybe. And so whenever there is difficulties in the ancestral lines, you know, the invitation is for us to become aware of it. And without going into a whole lot of stuff, I think it's it's difficult. There are there are really good people. There's a good book, Ancestral Medicine, um, that people, if you want to kind of look at this, there are people who are doing constellation work mm. that are very good at holding this. And I would I would encourage people who are interested to to engage with that kind of greater holding. Hard hard when we're in lockdown, but yes. Yes, but you know, reading, listening to podcasts and things like that. But I do think that just merely saying thank you. Mm. If you can find out the stories of your ancestors to remember them even if it's just creating a shrine even if it's honoring them I had an experience I was I was engaged to do um, a project in India storytelling project um, some years ago and um, I thought it was you know it was well I didn't I didn't know what I thought but I I knew that I I was compelled to to do it we we hooked up with some beautiful desert musicians and a classical musician and there's myself as a storyteller and a, and a, a lovely musician from Wales and it took three three or four years to build that but I was really the first year I went to this beautiful place called Maranga Fort I was struck by usually older women wearing beautiful saris touching these little plaques of hands on walls at the great elephant gates of this fort Mm. and I remember asking one of them one day you know what 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 are these and they said well they're sati hands they're the handprints of the women mostly the concubines of the maharajas that would have followed them out of the palace of the women where they were not seen by any other men other than eunuchs and the maharaja and some of them would have chosen to follow the funeral cortege and throw themselves on the pyre yeah just um, but they, you know, it was it, it, the practice was outlawed by the British, and then I think the, uh, during the, the time of the Raj. Um, but it, 
you know, there are there are occasions when it, it has still happened even in the 20th and 21st century. But to go back, so in the end, unbeknownst, uh, without me being really conscious, I became quite obsessed about this. And the story became about wanting, to, or the, the project became about wanting to reclaim the story of one of these women in order to represent the ore. Because when I when I spoke to the archivists, they didn't have the, the, the names of the concubines, and there would have been hundreds if not thousands of them, hmm. were not recorded. Only the official wives were. And yet there was there's at least 150, if not 200 handprints probably in Maranga Fort. And two years ago, we did the project. We told the story in the shadow of the Palace of the Women, four or 500 people there. And at the end, partway through, we all realized simultaneously as, as musicians and artists on stage that something had changed. It had, we'd dropped into ritual. Hmm. And at the end, there was so much, there was an outpouring of grief there was lots of tears, you know, applause, but really mostly tears and people coming up and shaking our hands and saying, you don't realize what you've done. You've healed something. Yeah. You've healed something here. And I really understood something, which I think I'd had an intellectual understanding of, that telling somebody's story, kind of historically reclaiming a story, helps to reweave backwards. Yeah. Ragged, frayed parts of the world. And if if we can do that as an act of service, yeah, the now becomes more whole. So tomorrow becomes mm. more whole, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and our future becomes right. more whole. And I, you know, one of the things I, you know, realized at the end of that was I had never been in control of that project <laughs> at all. You know, it had worked through you. <laughs> that it was. It, it, yeah, it has had me, you know, the, whatever, the, the great beings of, of the holding of this world had had me and I'd thankfully yielded to it and it was a profound experience, but it taught me something about that. So yes, for me, reclaiming the stories, telling the stories of especially groups of ancestors, honouring them is a very easy thing that we can all do. Yeah. It gets more complicated when we get to the one-on-one. I think that needs more careful holding. Yes, and I am still very aware of one of my early teachers who said, just because you die doesn't mean you get to be wise. Mm. Mm. But that's moving into shamanic work. And I think, so I think Mm. that's one of the things that I would like to say is we absolutely need to honour our ancestors, but but we need to be careful also. Um, And there's a balance to be had. And I think one of the things that I find most interesting, and again, you and I, it's very interesting because we haven't, talked in great depth about this, but in my morning ceremony on the hill, I every morning I face the southeast and I honour the ancestors of my blood lineage and the ancestors of my spirit lineage, and I thank them for the gift of this life. And in the last 10 days to two weeks, that has taken on an entirely different texture and feeling and meaning, and and my sense of that of the timeline opening up, that I'm standing in the present and I'm opening to the all time at one end and the no time at the other end, and that that timeline has become richer somehow and deeper. Mm. And as if that connection, which always I always thought that the very, very, very far distant ancestors were the primary guides in the writing of the Buddhika books and things. So that's, you know, we're talking 20 years of 
a sense of connectedness, but my goodness, it's deepened mm. in the last little while. So it, it does feel to me as if things are shifting at that level that we, in ways we can't understand. I think the more of us in this moment now that become conscious of this work, that return to mm. ritual, which has been happening over the last particularly 20 years or so, I'd imagine. And I know that, you know, lots of teachers from across the world have come, just, let's just talk about Britain, have come to Britain from all across the world and reconnected us with that. So there is a growing sense of that. My sense is the more that that happens, the more the ancestors attend. Mm. Colin Campbell, wonderful, wonderful teacher that I've been kind of really had joy in working with. He talks about, you know, when you want the ancestors to attend, you need to make a noise. You know, you've got to call them. They're all kind of, they're standing under the trees, having a fag, kind of doing their own thing. But if you want them to attend, you have to, you know, you have to call them in. Yeah. And he's South African, it's worth saying. So he's got quite a strong lineage of ancestor connection. Yeah. So I think there, I think there is enough awakeness, awakeness if that is even a word, um, of connection with ancestors and with the that we we are returning to ceremony. We are returning to connection. Not not everybody is, but there is a critical mass. Yeah, and it feels to me as if that's being met by all the unseen realms. Yes. By a gathering. There's a lovely thing. I think it's South American, but I love it. And I will often begin kind of sessions or stories with it in that when human beings gather to do ceremony, to tell stories, and sh share songs around a fire, the gods and the ancient ones listen. Mm. And they will ride on their chariots from the stars and gather around and throw a cloak around all who are gathered. And it's a cloak of listening. Oh, beautiful. And I'm sensing that now on a huge scale. Yeah. As if there is great listening, great watchfulness from the other side. And they're throwing this kind of cloak around us for us and watching for what we're going to do, how we're going to respond. Yeah. Um, there's plenty of space in there for our free will, but there is that cloak around us. I think this is maybe what this time is, this lockdown time. It's a cloak around us. It's the crucible of listening as we, a part of us and a great epoch dies and waiting for us to see what ancestors, what knowledge, what wisdom, what um, virtues we want to surround the conception of mm. the new with. Yes, we are the fairy godmothers, and what does it? What is it that we want to bring? I think that's huge. Yeah. Um, so, and one of the things that I'm doing with the accidental god students is offering a meditation of how to get into a felt heart space sense of what if we got it right? Because I think, what does it feel like in a world where everything flourishes? Is we don't know how that feels until we explore it. And then we know the courage and the awe and the wonder and the sense of relief and release that happens then. And if we can bring those as our gifts to the birth, I think it could be miraculous. Yeah, 
I think it could be. Um, it, it could be extraordinary. I think we have to be careful of not thinking that it will all be perfect. No, 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 definitely no. And I, I'm not saying I'm not setting you up, but we're, we're human. You know, the, the 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 one thing that the one reason why we're going to struggle with this, I think, you know, there'll be many reasons, but one of the things is that human beings have never. Um, have never experienced any moment in in history that is ideal, mm. and I think we there is a tendency we always to um, it's a bit like the green green grass, isn't it? The grass yeah. is always greener. That that somewhere in history there was an ideal time. Yeah, and everybody's idea of when that was is different. Yes. Yeah, and um, culturally it's going to be different. And we don't know what that feels like. So we have no sense within us of, of what that is. So, I mean, I think the work that you're doing with Accidental Gods is incredibly important. And it comes down to our creativity mm. of dreaming yeah. into just a few things that could be better, that, yeah. that you know, and how that would feel. Um, but there is a challenge there in that that answer will be different for different cultures yes. and different people. Yeah. And... Over to you on that one, Manda, because I'm I, I don't I don't quite know how to meet that yet. I don't either, but I also don't think nothing that I'm getting suggests that that is my problem. To be honest, <laughs> great. You know, um, <laughs> I, and that's one of the things that I've really learned with the shamanic stuff is I go up and go, "How do I fix this?" And they go, "That's not your problem." Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And learning to have the humility to know that I can't fix everything. That there are yeah. things that I can do and I need to do them as well as I can. And there are yeah. things that are outside my remit and I need to let them go and this, and and take on trust and faith mm. that somewhere that is somebody else's problem and they're dealing with it. Yeah. Um, because we can't fix everything. And, and there is no possible way that I can reach, I don't know, a Kurdish woman in a village you know, under assault by the Americans and the Turks trying to look after her family. Um, that's so far beyond my ability to touch, but I can work with those that I can reach. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and yeah, and be and be grateful that I can. I think that brings me to to you know to one thing that's been coming through for me as well in all of this is getting comfortable with being in the place of unknowing. Mm. Getting really comfortable with that, surrendering to it actually. Yeah. Because our culture is head-based mm. and all our lives we are supported in the idea that we can fix things by working them out with our heads. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think the absolute learning for now is that there are some things, you know, if we need to work out the logistics of how to get masks to everybody, that's a head thing. Mm. And that's what our heads are for. But there's a lot of the, what you and I have been discussing, the pregnancy, gestation, what are we birthing, that has nothing to do with our heads and everything to do with our hearts mm. and learning how to allocate head to head and heart to heart is I think part of what we need to do just now. Mm. I'm aware that time is running on. We're nearly mm. at our hour. There were a couple of things. You've mentioned several times that you have a contemplative practice mm. and because quite a lot of the people listening are engaged with accidental gods one way or another can you describe in a way that is useful for people in lockdown how you reach that practice and what it consists of in a way that isn't intrusive to your private practice? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, how, how you reach a practice, that's a really interesting one, isn't it? It's a long journey. And, mm. and I think um, for me, it was learning from other people and then 
getting comfortable with what works for me. So I would always encourage people to um, find a way through through you know different kind of traditions and things, but also to hold that lightly and find actually what works for them. As a child, I remember being able to do this really easily. Hmm. It's part and parcel, I think, of being a child until you get shut down in some way, and then you have to relearn it as an adult. Yep. For me now, I like to be. I like to sit in nature, and this this beautiful weather we've been having is just glorious. To, to just be able to do that. So I will just kind of sit in my garden right now. And it begins with, I suppose, listening to birdsong right now uh, around me and dropping down and just stilling. I think it, I, I connect with breath, but I also envisage myself as a node within a web. Huh. That's handy. And reach out to the things in nature that are immediately around me. Mm. The teachers, the rocks, the plants, the trees, and grow it from there. And there's a point at which I no longer have to have to use my imagination. There's a point at which doing that breathing, being with that web, that just goes then free flow. And I think that comes from just practice and getting myself out of the way, actually. Yeah. And there's also around that, there's before that, I would usually, as part of the, the setting up of that, I would usually take a handful of birdseed and go out and place it and acknowledge myself as a part within the web of life. Oh, that's lovely. That it's an exchange. Um, that I offer the birdseed to nature um, because I know I get so much joy back from it. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an exchange. It's an, it's an easy way to put myself, to remind myself of being in the web, and certainly not kind of husbanding and, and above it or anything like that, which I think humanity, we have a tendency to do. Um, and also to, to thank all my ancestors um, and all of creation, really, for my chance of being in this precious life right now. Hmm. And that's something that's grown for me, you know, since over the last four years, actually, since kind of coming close to death, the, the sense of how precious a chance it is to be in this life. And then I'll go and sit and, and then and I'm going to, and, and I, I tend not to time it. I tend to allow however much time I need to be in that space. It, you know, it's never, it's rarely possible to be in there for hours, but it's as long as it as it takes. And then there's a very natural way, time to come back to the here and now. Beautiful. And in that space, all sorts of things are allowed. Right. If yes. you know what I mean. In that much of it is about listening. Sometimes it ends up as a journey. Sometimes it's very visual. Sometimes it's very sensual. Sometimes it's just peaceful and nothing. Hmm. Um, and I don't try and overcomplicate and think about what it should be or shouldn't be. Yeah. That's so beautiful and such a wonderful place to end on. Thank you so much for this. It's been really profoundly moving in many ways. Um, and I think we'll open gates and doors for people listening and give us all a chance to have a sense of that moment between death and rebirth, which feels so potent just now. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you for, for the work you're doing with the uh 
uh, accidental gods and, and everything else. It's, it's really important this time. So that's it for another episode. Enormous thanks to Angharad for the authenticity and integrity and sheer heart of her work. We'll be back next week, as ever. In the meantime, thanks to Caro C for the music at the head and foot of the podcast and for the sound production. Thanks to Faith Tillery for designing the website and for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods. If you want to visit our website, we're at accidentalgods.life. You'll find the show notes there and a blog and a membership programme which is our route map of how we think we'll get to a future where we all flourish, people and planet. If you want to find the ways to really make that connection to the more-than-human world, we've built a structured programme that aims to help you get there. Because I really do think that if we're going to move into a new way of being, if we're going to find the ways where we can all flourish, we have to do it through our connection to the rest of the web of life. And whether we're in the hills of Wales or the centre of a city, there is life all around us. And connection, real heart connection, is part of our ancestral birthright and the key to our future. So head over to accidentalgods.life and explore. And as far as the podcast goes, if you've enjoyed this, please do subscribe. It helps us to know that you're there. Five stars and a review on the podcast app of your choice helps Google to know that we're here. But really, if we're going to reach the people who actually want to connect, we'll do it by word of mouth. So if you know anyone who wants to open, who wants to be heart-connected to the more-than-human world, please do send them a link. That's it. See you next week. Thank you, and goodbye.